Thank you, Kyle and uh, team and church for that beautiful corporate praise and worship. Um, what a joy, what a blessing. That song we sang, Christ is Mine Forever, loved that song. That was wonderful. And the one stanza said, But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. Of course, taken directly from our passage in Ephesians 6 that we find ourselves. Uh, we have the armor of God. We are commanded by God in Ephesians 6, verse 10, verse uh, 11, verse 13, to put on the armor of God, to take up the armor of God, put it on and leave it on. Of course, you have to be a member of the army to wear the armor of God. You have to be a soldier of Christ. And even as we think of this, even as we think of, as we read in the scripture reading from Isaiah 59, where God was describing the wicked nature, the pervading wickedness of the nation of Israel, uh, we realize that the world is wicked, that the Western world, the Eastern world, we see that unfolding now. And the sad reality is just as the world in many ways, or at least some people in the world, seem to perhaps becoming more aware of the need, the sad reality is that very often uh, the church, or at least some portions of the visible church, become less sure of its mission. But we needn't be uncertain. We needn't be confused because God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness for the individual Christian, for the individual local church, and for the church. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Our passage this morning are two verses, verses 13 and 14. But listen as I read the Word of God, verses 10 through 17, describing the spiritual war that we are engaged in and the armor of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And beloved, this is the word of God indeed that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we have in verses 13 and 14 is kind of a transition. Paul finishes the charge in verse 13, and then he starts the armor in verse 14. Well, we understand that we can't lose the war. It's already been won by Christ. But we can lose battles along the way. And therefore, we understand that we need the armor of God. Well, beloved, Let's look at verse 13 where Paul, again, finishes his initial opening charge that he began back in verse 
10. He gives a call to vigilance, a call to decisive readiness, uh, to resistance, to steadfastness. And in verse 13, what we will see is we will see a determined resistance and a decisive readiness, a determined resistance. It begins, verse 13, he says, therefore. And we understand that picking up in verses 10, 11, and 12, Paul began with the empowerment we need. We need a strength that comes from God outside of us. And then he gives a brief shot into the equipment we will wear and he expands on the enemy we will face stated as the devil at the end of verse 11, and then all, basically, Satan's army, the spiritual forces of wickedness that he expands upon in verse 12. It is therefore because of the enemy we face. And we should recognize that it is the same grace of God, the same grace that reconciles you to God, also antagonizes you toward the enemy, towards Satan. There is a Babylon B headline that said this, it's a Christian satire, satire uh, news site, which very often seems to be more prophetic and newsworthy than some of the other fake news sites that don't label themselves as satire, but I digress. The Babylon Bee headline said, quote, progressive Christian offers new, more open, less judgmental Christianity. No, wait, it's just Satan again. You see, beloved, the unseen, that's a whimsical take on something very somber, very serious. The unseen hordes of wickedness we understand are behind the visible evil seen in the world today. That's why the Apostle Paul says, therefore, because of the spiritual forces of darkness, therefore, take up the full armor of God, lift it up, carry it, and bring it along with you. Back in verse 11 and here in verse 13 when he said put on the full armor of God and now take up the full armor of God. Again, the grammar behind the command doesn't mean a continual command. He's not saying every time you get up in the morning put on the armor of God. He says take it up, put it on, and keep it on 24-7. Stay dressed for action. Beloved, it's interesting, in Exodus 12, verse 11, there's a great illustration when God was giving instruction around the Passover meal to the nation of Israel prior to his pouring out of the final judgment on the nation of Egypt and their departure of the nation of Israel. When God was giving instruction to the nation of Israel through Moses, in Exodus 12, verse 11, you'll read these words. God says through Moses, you shall eat it, meaning the Passover meal. You shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. You shall do it in a time of preparation, and you should be ready to move. You need to be ready for action because whether it was God dealing with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or for us as church with the spiritual combat in which we were, are now engaged, we understand the battle never wane, wanes. There's a, never a ceasefire. There's never a detente or peace treaty or temporary truce. And for the child of God, for the Christian, you are, by virtue of being a forgiven man or a forgiven woman, a soldier in the army of the Lord. You can't dodge the draft. There are no deferments. The Puritan William Gurnall, I mentioned him previously, who he's the gentleman that wrote a 1,400-page commentary devotion on just the verses 10 through 17. He had this to say. He said, 
the armors to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in it. We're to stand and watch in his armor and never relax our vigilance. And then I like what he says. He says, for the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time, end quote. You can think of Noah. Noah was abused by his son when he was in a drunken sleep. Delilah cut Samson's hair while he was asleep. Or Eutychus slept and fell from the window when the Apostle Paul was preaching. And let that be a warning. (laughs) Or, back on point, Solomon says in Proverbs 6, verses 9 and 10, and I was joking on that warning, of course. Proverbs 6, verses 9 and 10, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Beloved, we dare not, cannot be lazy, complacent. We need to be alert. We need to be awake. And back here in Ephesians 6, verse 13, as Paul is wrapping up his opening charge, it's a call to resistance. And what we need to understand is this, that we are called to fight as a soldier, and we're to fight for something, to defend the ground, the territory that Christ has already won. And we are also to fight against something. You're fighting against something. We're not just standing firm for something. We are standing firm against something, which is precisely what he says here. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist. That's a purpose statement. That's the reason why you are to take up the full armor of God. The English Standard Version says so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. It's actually interesting. Three times we are told to stand firm. Verse 10, verse uh, 13, or excuse me, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. Stane, stane, stane in the original language. Right here, this word translated as resist in the New American Standard or withstand is literally anti-stane, anti-stand firm. So, again, we are standing firm for something and we are standing firm against something. The same word, resist or withstand, for the ESV, you'll find in James chapter 4, verse 7, where James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, withstand the devil, and he will flee from you. Or the apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, withstand him, stand firm against him, firm in your faith. Now, we can ask the question, that's the command. How are we to resist the devil? How are we to withstand? How are we to stand firm against the devil? And I love what God said through the prophet Isaiah again. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, so to be sure, there are definitely distinctions between God's dealing with the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, the New Covenant, but there are, there's great continuity as well as the discontinuity. And in Isaiah 8, verses 19 through 20, the prophet Isaiah says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? 
And then in verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, exclamation point. When the whispers come from the world, when the whispers come from the enemy, when the whispers come from unhealthy fear and doubt, to the law and to the testimonies, to the word of God. And of course, the greatest example is we can think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his humanity, Satan tempted him three times after 40 days of fasting. And three times, how did Jesus resist the devil? He said, it stands written. It stands written. It stands written. So we will come to the one offensive weapon in this panoply of the armor of God in Ephesians 6 verses 14 through 17 as the sword of the spirit, the word of God. But that is how we resist the evil one. Well, here in verse 13, he says, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Now, what does he mean by this? Does he mean, I mean, we understand that we're living in this present misery. And in fact, in chapter 5, verse 16, Paul there said, so earlier back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So there is a general sense that we are living in the evil day in a general sense. But I think the Apostle Paul here is speaking about something more particular here. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, after the temptation of Jesus, after Jesus' victory of the battle, the great epic battle of his temptation, it says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him. The devil departed from Satan, or excuse me, the devil <laughs> departed from Jesus until an opportune time. So what does it mean for you and for me when he says that we may be able to resist in the evil day? Well, sometimes the evil day, and I don't think this is one particular day at a point in the future for everybody, but it is a particular day or could be particular days for individual Christians. And it may come in the form, the evil day may come in the form of a painful illness or disability. It may come in the agonizing loss of a loved one. It may come in the form of oppression here in America. Maybe someday we'll get to actual persecution, as so many other Christians experience even now or in the world. But even more to the point, I think the evil day that of which we should be most concerned for ourselves comes as temptation to sin when, watch this, mark this, when lust and opportunity coincide. When we are at our weakest and the temptation comes, when lust and opportunity coincide, I think, would be at the center of the target of what Paul means when he says, so that with the armor of God, equipped with the armor of God, we may be able to resist evil in the evil day. Beloved, that means we don't just show up on game day for the first time and say, put me in, coach. We pray and prepare before the evil day, before the battle begins, so that we may be able to stand our ground in the day of severe trial in the critical moments of life. Beloved, we need to be ready in advance. We need to be ready for the suffering when it comes, for the tragedy before it falls, and for the temptation before it strikes. The author, American author, I don't think he was a believer, Jack London said these wise words, and unsafe people can have wise words at times. Jack London said, the proper function of man is to live, not merely to exist. 
I won't waste my days trying to prolong them. I will use my time. But let us go to a believer, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, who gave his life in Panama back in the 50s. He says, and you need to track me on this. He says, what is, is actual. What might be simply is not. I mustn't therefore question God as though he robbed me of things that aren't. For the things that are are belong to us, and they're good, God-given, and enriched. And therefore, we can't let our longing for what is not slay our appetite for what is. End quote. Beloved, that is how we have a determined resistance against the evil one practically. And then we move from the determined resistance to a decisive readiness. Winston Churchill said, fear is a reaction. Courage is a decision. I like that. And beloved, what Paul does to you and me here is he gives us a call to steadfastness, a call to decisive readiness. Look at there at the end of verse 13. And having done everything. That's the readiness. And having done everything to stand firm. And then at the beginning of verse 14, he gives the command, stand firm, therefore. And that command at the beginning of verse 14 is another urgent command, do it now. So having done everything is the readiness, and then this urgent command, every, done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, that's the decisive readiness. And what he's saying here is, and he's already told us to stand firm back in 11, he's saying stand firm now. Not after breakfast, not after tomorrow. Stand firm now. Three times he uses that. And if we bring in that resist word that was stand, that anti-stand firm, four times here, this is the center command of this opening charge to you and to me before he elucidates the different components of the armor. John Stott, the pastor and commentator, said, Christians who shake like the grass won't resist the wind when the rulers and powers begin to blow. Do you get that? If we are fearful Christians, and that's an oxymoron, and that's a contradiction in terms, unless we should fear God and fear God alone, and we should fear nothing else besides the Lord. But in our flesh, when we are fearful, we're like grass that won't resist the rulers and the powers. He picked up two of those demonic ranks and categories from verse when they begin to blow. Beloved, that means don't lose your footing. Don't surrender ground. Don't be carried off by every wind of doctrine. Don't be pushed around. Firmly hold your position. Don't, pro, or speaking proactively, actively, don't quit. Finish the course. Run through the tape. Stay to the end. Fight to the end. And a beautiful illustration just came through my Twitter feed 10 days ago on Thursday. Um, there's a man, Jonathan Isaac. He's a six foot 11 forward for the Orlando Magic. And I've seen a couple excerpts from him, a couple quotes, and I've loved what I've seen. He's been very calm, very collected, very measured. The times that I've seen Jonathan Isaac, he's very, very humble. Um, in other words, very non-celebrity athlete-ish. Ten days ago, on Thursday, October 30th, he tweeted, Be encouraged and stand tall. With Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 18 as his closing salutation. And he was pointing towards a book that he's 
writing. He's writing a book called Why Stand? And in his particular case, it's, he's bringing that out of his experience where he made a decision to stand for the anthem a year ago, and he's now making a decision based on his own personal conviction that could put his NBA career at risk. And this is what he said when he read an excerpt from this book. He said this, quote, Many of us have come to believe the myth that to be courageous means to be unafraid. That's not true at all. Courage has nothing to do with the absence of fear and everything to do with not allowing the presence of real fear to stop you. It's realizing that everything fear has to offer and still deciding against it. Hearing its lies, realizing its consequences, and shouldering its volume, all because to not move forward owes a greater price than standing still. That's courage, end quote. And then in the little video clip that I saw in that Twitter feed, he finished by saying, this has everything to do with my belief and relationship with Jesus Christ. And I say amen to that. So, beloved, don't be shocked when Satan attacks. Don't be shocked when life is hard. This is spiritual combat. Prepare for attack. Again, the war is won. The battles, the skirmishes goes to the one, goes to the woman or the man who doesn't give up. Paul told Timothy, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. Even as one of the songs, one of the beautiful songs, again, that was just fantastic. Thanks, Gary. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, all of us. Uh, we talked about our status as pilgrims. As pilgrims, we walk. As witnesses, we go. As athletes, we run. As soldiers, we stand firm and fight. Paul finished his charge. Then in verse 14, look at this, he starts the armor. We need, beloved, to win these battles. We need armor forged by God and furnished by God. We need armor made by God and supplied by God. And we come in verse 14 to the first two of the six pieces of this armor, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. The first piece of God-forged and God-furnished armor is the belt of truth. Now, our supply chain falling apart like a house of cards notwithstanding, you probably still could go into a clothing store and have a wide variety of very stylish belts and belt buckles to choose from. But the belt that he's talking about here is not decorational. It is foundational. And it's based upon the first foundational element, which is truth. He says in verse 14, having girded your loins with truth. Now, in the first three elements of the armor, the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes, he uses a voice that basically says, you put it on yourself. So we understand the empowerment we need, going back to verse 10, is strength from outside of us, a strength that comes from God. But this is armor. You and I have a responsibility to take up, put on, leave it on, this armor of God, this belt of truth. And it's interesting, it's the exact same compound word, Parazonai is found in Luke 12, verse 35, where there Jesus in his teaching said, be dressed in readiness. And he's talking about faithful men who are waiting for their master. And he says, 
be dressed in readiness. Literally, you yourselves let your loins be girded. That's the exact same compound word in Luke 12, 35, as we find here in 6, 14. There is a related compound word, anazunomai, so the same base root, but with a different preposition at the beginning of the compound word, found being used by Peter in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, when he says, gird your minds, that's the same or at least related compound words. Gird your minds for action, keeping sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is not a dreamy carelessness. This is a decisive readiness. Now, when back here in verse 14, when he is giving this picture of a soldier that needs to gird his loins before battle, what they would have is the soldiers would wear a tunic. And they'd have a tunic that would go down and hang just above their ankle. So they would pick up all the tunic material and gather it up above their knees. And they would gather it around to the front. Then they would pull it forward, tie it across the buttocks, using Boris Gump language there, Right across there, tuck it underneath their legs, pull it back around from the side, kind of like a diaper, split it apart in the two sides, and then bring it forward and then tie it together so their legs are exposed and they're now ready for battle. That's the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using when he tells you and me to gird your loins with truth. We need to explain that because you probably didn't say, I'm going to go gird my loins for this, that, or the other thing anytime in recent history. Now, One thing to understand, just on a technical side, the belt, the soldier's belt, is technically not part of the armor. But it is absolutely essential to be prepared for battle. The belt gives firmness, security, even strength and mobility. So, beloved, this is the first element of the armor of God with that caveat, with that proviso I just gave. Uh, This armor is forged by God, it's furnished by God, and it's also worn by God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I read, we even read earlier this morning in our public reading, Isaiah 59, including verse 17. But look at Isaiah chapter 11 with a clear prophecy of Christ, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Jesse is the father of David. Isaiah 11, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now look at verse 5. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And then verse 6, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Verse 6, looking forward to the time when Christ is ruling here on earth during the millennium with a rod of iron. But the point back here on task is the armor that God equips you with is forged by God, furnished by God, and it was worn by God, its very own word. Now, 
Having said this, when he says the belt of truth, gird your loins with truth, we can ask the question, is this, is this truth or is this truthfulness? Is this the objective truth outside of you, which is found in the word of God, or is this the subjective truth demonstrated by you? Is this the immutable veracity of the truth of the word of God, or is this the impassioned sincerity of your truthfulness as by God's grace and mercy, a child of God, a disciplined man or woman. I mean, we know Jesus said, I am the truth, John 14, verse 6. He, in his high priestly prayer, he said to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So we know truth is, Christ is truth. His word is truth. Back here in Ephesians 4, verse 21, he says truth is in Jesus. So to be sure, there's the objective truth. But I think it's a both and. It's a both and. Both the objective truth of God is revealed in the Bible and the subjective measure of the truth working itself out in your life so that you are a, not just a truth teller, but you, you're a truth liver and a truth truster in your life. It's the truth worked out deep down in your heart which produces sincerity of mind, integrity of life, and faithfulness of service and I would say the best evidence that you're a truth truster is that you are a truth teller and a truth liver beloved we need wholehearted devotion to Christ and unyielding integrity in life if we're going to stand firm in the evil day as I read before Exodus 12 11 I at least cited it again when Moses was giving instruction on the Passover meal when he said, now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded. By the way, that's the exact same word, that perizonomai that we see here, the preparation and readiness. Be ready to move, ready to fight because turbulence is coming. Like on the airplane, the stewardess goes around and looks, make sure the belt, turbulence is coming, you better give that belt a little extra tug. But turbulence is coming, turbulence is here. Even in the United States of America, we better give that belt an extra tug or true, uh, excuse me, an extra tug. So, what about truth? What is truth? Why is it true? The unbeliever has no answer. We could ask the unbelieving man or woman, why do you believe what you believe? And the answer in the heart would be because my little self-enthroned God in the mirror says so. But beloved, as believers, we examine God as he is. We don't, you don't need to, we don't need to try to prove God to the unsaved as though the unsaved could go outside God to examine him. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. When Paul was evangelizing the pagan Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He didn't try to prove the existence of the resurrection. He cited it as accomplished fact. The point here, beloved, is your faith is supported by reason, evidence, and facts. But our faith is not arrived at by reason, evidence, and fact. Because all Men and women, despite the cries of protest, know that God exists. Romans 1, 18 through 20, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
in unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without an excuse. Beloved, what that means is the ignorance of the unbeliever is not an innocent ignorance of a lack of information. It's a culpable ignorance of rebellion against the truth that they already know from virtue of creation and virtue of their conscience. And they're suppressing that. Back in the thinking of truth, the faith, beloved, of the unsaved is irrational. Your faith is rational. It's based upon the universal and variant abstract truth of the word of God. The truth. Unregenerate man can count, but he can't give an account. He can't even explain why he can count. The pagan says stealing is wrong, but he can't tell you why it's wrong. He's utterly incapable of using his imago dei, the image of God. He's utterly incapable of using reason in a reasonable manner because of rebellion against the truth. So drawing this in by closing application for this point, this means we don't put God on trial and then list the evidence for him. By virtue of bringing the word of God to bear, we put the pagan on trial. We don't tell the unsaved to stop thinking and surrender. We tell them to surrender and start thinking biblically, rationally, reasonably, which is the only way of salvation and the only way towards true reason, true rationality. So that's the belt of truth. The second element of armor, the second piece of God-forged and God-furnished armor is the breastplate of righteousness. So the belt is the first step of preparation. The breastplate is the first element of protection. He finishes verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, using grammar that says this is your responsibility to put it on yourself. And by the way, the soldier's breastplate would often cover their back as well. It would be something they would likely slip their head through, and there would be metal or some kind of very thick uh, linen fabric that could be interwoven with shells or something else to provide protection, and it would likely have it on the back as well. And one more time, in the same way, the same kind of evidence we get from the belt, the armor is not just made by God and supplied by God, but it's worn by God. Isaiah 59, verse 17, he put on righteousness like a breastplate. Or the Apostle Paul, not just when he was writing to the Ephesian believers, but when he was writing to the Thessalonian believers. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, he says, Paul says, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. And in a similar fashion to the question that we asked about the uh, truth, we can ask a similar question about the righteousness. Is this breastplate of righteousness, is the righteousness the imputed righteousness of Christ? The perfect righteousness of Christ that has been credited into your account? Or is this the practical righteousness of a godly woman or a godly man? 
Well, we know for sure Paul is writing to believers. So by definition, you as a believer, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ that has been credited to, to you. So in a sense, you don't need to put that on. But again, it's really a both and here because the practical righteousness of a godly man or woman can never be completely at all separated from the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ produces the righteousness of the Christian. The Philippians 3 verse 9, righteousness that's not of my own, that the Apostle Paul wrote about, gives birth to a righteousness of my own. The imputed righteousness of Christ leads to the practical righteousness of the Christian. So personal holiness, obedience to God, daily righteous living are your protection against losing the battle on the evil day when lust and opportunity coincide. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, a relentless pursuit of righteousness. Bring your desires and emotions under the control of God. Submit to the authority of the word of God rather than to the siren song of impulse Desire and pressure. Recognize that righteous people pay a price. Discipline requires sacrifice. But, you know, here in Ephesians, how do we do this? How do we do this practically? Look at chapter 4, verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer. But rather, let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Or 1 Peter 3 verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a defense, to give an answer to those who ask, yet with gentleness and with fear. And the point there is, beloved, how can we preach righteousness if we aren't wearing the breastplate of righteousness, if we don't live righteously? Not perfectly, but righteously. Now, having said that, Babe Ruth struck out 1,330 times. Michael Jordan, counting free throws, missed one, or excuse me, missed 16,042 times. Tom Brady has heretofore thrown 196 interceptions. Peter, who wrote 
sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an answer and a defense for those who ask, denied Christ three times. So if you are, by God's grace and mercy, as you would seek to examine your own life, say, I thank you, Lord, that at some level I am walking righteously. Praise God and thank God for that and excel yet more. If you fall outside that camp but you're trusting in Christ, pick up, dust yourself off, take up the armor of God, put it on and keep it on and go forward. And beloved, taking up, putting on and keeping on the breastplate of righteousness means that you and I keep trusting the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the once for all sacrifice, the price of his imperishable blood that he paid on your behalf to deliver you from the power of death and even the fear of death and the power and authority of the devil, the enemy of God. In the Encyclopedia Britannica, Volume 2, which, Volume 2, I guess, to you young people, doesn't even make any sense <laughs> in this digital world, but there was a time it did make sense. They, it talked about the morale of war, and it first talked about the soldier in the ranks. Then it moved, the next topic was range of fire, then interception of supplies. Finally, a fourth element was tenacity and endurance, and it hearkened to a real-life example of one of the world wars. And this is what you read in the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, who can forget the moving spectacle of the British leave trains returning to the front during the world war? The men were accompanied to the station by a silent throng composed for the most part of women and children. A few handkerchiefs furtively sought the eyes of those who were left behind. Now, on board the vessel at Dover, the returning men donned their life-saving waistcoats and stood closely crowded together on deck, imprisoned in their own thoughts. If, so this is now among the soldiers, if from a group here and there came a song or a noisy demonstration, it was invariably from the young soldiers going out to the front for the first time. The others remained impassive, silent, gloomy, and their eyes gave token of the cold energy and the spirit of savage resolve on which they had fallen back. Experience had taught them a mere knowledge of their duties, and a fleeting enthusiasm would not suffice to, he to bear the long and bitter ordeal of battle. They required a spirit proved in the crucible of discipline. Beloved, take up, put on the armor of God for the glory of God, for your joy. And friend, if you're here this morning, again, you can't wear the armor if you're not a member of the army. Are you a soldier of Christ? You can join the army by recognizing that you are a sinner in the hands of a righteous, angry God. That the punishment for your sin is death, a spiritual death. But God provides a way of escape. Jesus Christ died, was tortured, and suffered at the cross. And Jesus said that if anyone would come to him, would trust in him alone by faith alone, he would forgive them, he will forgive them, he will forgive you of your sins, make you a new creature, adopt you into his family, make you a son of God or a daughter of God, and enlist you in the army of God. 
Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord before we go to the communion table. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the salvation, Lord Jesus, that you purchased for us, that we enjoy. Thank you, Lord, that even as we consider the somber nature of the spiritual war, we praise you and thank you that we have trust in you. We can have joy through even the darkest valley of even the shadow of death. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, in remembrance of what you've accomplished by your once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf for your glory that we now approach the communion table. Amen.